Tonight I'd like to <coughs> share with you some of the experiences in my own life and practice, both to give a range, some range, of the kinds of things that can happen, especially with people who do a lot of intensive practice, and perhaps also to offer some perspective on the kinds of things that you've been experiencing of these last three months. The first experience of dukkha was clearly birth. <laughs> I don't actually recall it myself, <laughs> but everything I've been told about it. My mother was quite sick. She actually lost 30 pounds while she was pregnant with me. So something was going on. I didn't speak until I was three years old. And during that time, I was not keeping noble silence. <laughs> I'm told that I screamed pretty uh, perseveringly for those first three years, driving most of the people around me quite crazy. And even after I started speaking, maybe for the next eight or nine years, I had quite a violent uh, temper, and prompted by one thing or another, there would be these huge tantrums, you know, of anger and rage. But around age 11 or 12, there was really a very important insight that happened, although at the time I didn't recognize it as such. There was so much suffering in that, you know, just being out of control in that expression of anger or frustration. Suffering for myself, suffering for the people around me. So when I was about 11, I suddenly saw that there was actually a space between the feeling and the action. And that in that space I had a choice. And that was a tremendous revelation to me, to see that I actually didn't have to go on acting out in quite that same way. And from that time on, there has really been this very um, fruitful awareness of the possibility of choice that comes in our lives when we're aware. When we actually see what's arising in our mind, rather than simply lost in our actions. So things calmed down quite a bit after that. I was very grateful. In high school and then early on in college, I began to become consumed by the God question. It felt to me so important to understand, you know, in the context of a kind of not very not very orthodox religious upbringing, but some some familiarity. It seems to me so much of life choice for myself at least would depend on whether I really could feel confident that God existed, and if he didn't or she didn't, I wanted to know. Although at the time I really didn't think of the possibility of it being true. <laughs> That came later. <laughs> and I remember in college, the first year of freshman in Columbia, I was so tormented by this question. I was consumed by the question. And it, it came to a crescendo, and I remember quite clearly coming to a certain point and quite firmly deciding that in one week I was going to know. I had to reach a decision about this question in a week. And for that whole week I was really looking. Unfortunately, I can't remember what I decided. <laughs> the big question of my life. 
So I went on to study philosophy. <laughs> and it really was not very satisfying. I, my mind was very interested in those questions, but I found that the academic study of philosophy did not actually satisfy the hunger that was there. You know, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, there was something inside that was really looking for an understanding about how to live, that wasn't so interested in debating philosophical points. And I really didn't find that in at least that particular academic setting at all. Although in one of the courses in Eastern religion, it was the beginning of a doorway that opened. Uh, one of the books we read was the Bhagavad Gita, and that was my very first introduction to Eastern thought at all. And the notion of non-attachment, which I certainly had not been brought up with, you know, and was not really part of our cultural heritage, Suddenly, this, this idea, the experience of non-attachment, <coughs> was expressed so powerfully and so beautifully you know, in that text. I don't know if you're you know, familiar with it. One of the themes that goes through the whole text, and it really is a spiritual practice, it's a sadhana, to learn how to act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Now, it was, at that time especially, this powerful teaching about coming back to the present, of being in the present, acting fully without attachment to the fruit. That was the beginning. <coughs> Just afterwards, and I think I've mentioned this earlier, in this school, and I went into the Peace Corps in Thailand, And it was really in Bangkok while I was teaching there <coughs> that I had my first introduction to Buddhism. And I would go to these discussion groups and badger the monks you know, without mercy, <laughs> with all kinds of philosophical questions. You know, I went actually with a copy of Spinoza in hand. The very first time I went, I was going to debate. <laughs> you know. But that was the beginning. I mean, getting exposed to the classical Buddhist teachings in uh, Bangkok and beginning to meditate, taking the first steps in meditation, which I think I described to you earlier. You know, I set my alarm clock for five minutes the first time so as not to oversit. <laughs> <laughs> You might try that. <laughs> if you find you're still having some difficulty, <laughs> just for five minutes. It was actually while I was still in the Peace Corps, and right at the end of that time, there were a few experiences which followed one another, which had a very transforming effect. One of which came actually through the through Western literature and talked about this much earlier in the retreat was through reading of truth you know, remembrance of things past and so that was sort of my Peace Corps reading project and it took about the whole two years it was this massive massive book and it all culminates in the last 50 pages, really, it's all building up, this masterpiece of literature is building up to the insight that the past is in the present. And it's quite amazing, and it has this amazing effect on me, having plowed through, you know, all of those pages, somehow my mind was right or right or ready for that understanding. And as he starts talking about just that, how the way we experience the past is as a thought or feeling in the present. 
that's where it is. That's where it's to be experienced. And I think you've certainly seen that during this time. But the past doesn't exist out there. It exists right here. And in my mind, just very simply extrapolated that to future. Well, if the past is like that, the future also is simply a thought or feeling in the moment. That's the only way we experience it. And so in that moment, time collapsed. Past and future collapsed into the present. And there's this huge burden taken off. And as I've mentioned, it's not that we stop using these concepts of past and future, but when we're connected deeply with the realization that actually and literally and completely all that we're experiencing is just in this moment. That's very life. Just the lightness of the moment, whatever it is. That is that's a very big um, step in this Dharma journey, coming to that understanding. And very shortly after that, had another quite powerful experience listening to somebody read from a Tibetan text. And it was a text called the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. And to summarize what's in the text, it's really what he's been doing here for three months, it says over and over again, look into the nature of your own mind. And look into the nature of awareness. See the empty nature of awareness. Experience the unborn, the unformed, you know, and on and on. And something happened, my mind happened to fall into a very concentrated state while this friend was reading it. And it's as if the words were just entering my heart mind. They entered someplace. And there was this very deep, transformative realization of selflessness, of emptiness. And it was so powerful. I was kind of walking around, turned inside out for a couple of days, Pretty much to the thought, well, it was unexpected, but I guess I'm done. <laughs> because there was really no one there, and but then I began to notice after a few days of walking around in the days, you know, I'd be walking in Bangkok at night you know, different times. I just noticed different situations with fear would arise. You know, this moment of anxiety. Uh, hmm. That doesn't quite square with being done. <laughs> <laughs> so over the course of not very many days, I had to kind of reassess uh, the experience and I think quite beneficially, I realized that it wasn't that I was at the end, I was at the beginning. I was really at the beginning of this path. I'd like to read something about this particular understanding because it's so crucial and as I'll mention later in the talk also, it can happen many times in the course of one's meditative career. This is from uh, that Korean Zen Master Sino, which I mentioned a few talks ago. Um, I'll just read a little bit from this. For innumerable cultures without beginning, up to the present time, ordinary people have passed between the five destinies, coming and going between birth and death. They obstinately cling to self, and over a long period of time their natures have become thoroughly permeated by false thoughts, inverted views, ignorance, and the different habit energies. Although coming into this life, they may suddenly awaken to the fact that their self-nature is originally void and calm, and no different from that of the Buddhas. 
these old habits still are difficult to eliminate completely. Consequently, when they come into contact with either favorable or adverse objects, an anger or happiness, propriety or impropriety, blaze forth. Their adventitious defilements are no different from before. If they do not increase their efforts and apply their power through the help of wisdom, how will they ever be able to counteract ignorance and reach the place of great rest and repose? So how could you neglect subsequent cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow after them. Reduce them and reduce them again until you reach the unconditioned. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. Then it goes on in the same vein. Even after we see deeply and directly and transformingly into the nature of emptiness, even when we realize that deeply, still the habit energies are so deep and so strongly conditioned that we need to continue our practice. This is this is the school in Zen which is called sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. You know, and I feel it is a very important teaching there, all along the way. And then still as we practice, continue our practice, continue to apply right effort, we do it all with the understanding of emptiness. And so the two come together. Sunil expressed this uh, in a very, a very um, incisive pith instruction. He said, do not fear the arising of thoughts, because they're empty. Only be concerned that your awareness of them is tardy. And that's really what our practice is about. Don't be concerned about the arising of thoughts because like everything else, it's empty phenomena. Only be concerned that your awareness of them is tardy. Because when we're not aware of thoughts, when we're lost in that, we've taken birth in one of the realms again. We're back in some sort of existence. After the Peace Corps and all this happened, this was quite an amazing time for me. I came back to America. I tried to practice by myself, tried to integrate all of this. And I found it was impossible. You know, I had tried to mix up all kinds of practices, got very confused. And I realized that I needed to find a teacher. That I needed somebody to help guide me. You know, through the complexity of understanding the mind. Went back to India, and I think I've told you some of the stories of that first trip back. Ended up in Bodhaya, which is a small town where the Buddha was enlightened, and where I met my first teacher, Manindraji. And in so many respects, he was such a wonderful teacher for me, not the least being that he didn't fit my image of a guru at all. He had so many unguru-like qualities. One thing, he's very speedy. And he's not kind of slow and measured in his movement. He really moves. But one of the interesting things that I learned just from watching him, not, not even from anything he said at first, was, was noticing how centered he was in that fast movement. It wasn't the fast movement of rushing. He was really mindful, really balancing. You could see it. You could just see it in the way that he was moving. There was no toppling forward. 
one of his great themes in teaching and it was a tremendous help for me to live the foundation of practice over and over again he would say be simple and easy just be simple and easy about things whatever would come up just be simple and easy well if we practice being simple and easy our life gets quite simple and easy so it's a very good uh, reminder one time we, we were sitting in Bodhgaya at one of the chai shops, tea shops, and we saw him and were kind of you know, running around the bazaar, bargaining for peanuts. And he's just for kind of a handful of peanuts, and he's driving these peanut vendors crazy. <laughs> kind of this hard bargaining with them over a handful of peanuts. So we kind of questioned him, you know, here you are saying, be simple and easy, what are you doing? And I said, I said be simple and easy, not to be a simpleton. <laughs> so he had this very pragmatic approach to life. One of the one of the things that I valued so much in him, and again it really set what I feel was a very wonderful foundation of Dharma understanding. He was remarkably open minded. in terms of exploring other techniques of Vipassana, other spiritual trips in India. He never was trying to kind of hold on. He was just always encouraging for whatever anybody wanted to do. Because he said the Dharma didn't suffer in comparison with anything. And so he was not not coming from a place of fear about being exposed to anything at all once we have a really good understanding of the Dharma within us. He had a very broad view of practice because he was of the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw and it's a very particular lineage in Burma which combines study and practice. And that's not so frequent. Usually or often there are temples and monasteries where it's mostly study or mostly practice and not much study but in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition they really combine both and it provides a great breadth of vision it's helpful to become familiar with the text with the actual teachings of the Buddha because it broadens the understanding we have of our own experience and when it puts it into the vast, vast context. When I was practicing at that time, I was staying at the Burmese Vihara in Bodhaya in India. In the Vasudhi Maga, this great big compendium uh, of Buddhist teachings called the Path of Purification in English. There's a whole section describing the perfect meditation place. You know, it should be away from a village, it should be quiet, there should be not much disturbance, not many people going by. In many ways, talking about IMS, was not talking about the Burmese Vihar. <laughs> it was on the main road between Bodhaya and Gaya, so all day long, trucks and buses and cars and people were right outside the window. There was a public water tap directly across the street, so all the village women would come and be doing laundry there. There were villages all around playing at different times, you know, over loudspeakers, all this very loud music. The conditions within the Vihara were really difficult. The first year I was there, they had they have these rope beds. You know, there's a wooden frame and then rope woven which are not uncomfortable, but unfortunately, it was about five feet long. (laughs) So that was a bit of a problem. And for some reason or other, the first year I was there, I hadn't quite gotten the transmission, uh, the great Dharma transmission about mosquito nets. So I was there during my practice and sleeping on this five foot long bed, and mosquitoes, really bad. I'd be wrapping my head up in this 
The food at the Vihara was really difficult. It was basically cabbage and potatoes for lunch, and potatoes and cabbage for tea time. <laughs> you know, sometimes there's a banana about that size thrown in. The reason I'm mentioning all this, both to kind of give you an appreciation for conditions of practice here, but also, even given all of that, I think my experience of the Burmese Vihar was my first genuinely deep experience of gratitude. The conditions were hard, they were difficult, and I was so grateful to have a place to practice. It felt to me like I was in a Deva world. To be in a place that actually valued people practicing was so extraordinary to me. But I had found such a place because when I looked out in the world, whether in India or in this country, I didn't know of many places like that. Where basically I could sit and walk and nobody would bother me because they valued that practice. And so this tremendous gratitude for being enabled to practice intensively in that way. It's a beautiful feeling. I very easily imagine myself spending 25 years there. I was so happy there. The practice wasn't easy, aside from the physical conditions, which were really minor. I was not one of these yogis who had instant samadhi. You know, so there are some few, there aren't a lot, but there are some people who just have a very natural concentration, they sit down, their minds are concentrated, you know, and the practice is quite easy. My mind was as unconcentrated as a mind can get. And that's why I'm so optimistic. <laughs> because I just see over the years that it actually is possible to calm the mind a bit. <laughs> you know, knowing where I started from. When I started sitting, my mind was wandering all the time. I would sit down. About an hour later, I'd get up, having had a really nice stink. <laughs> and this went on for quite a while. This was not just a question of a week or two. And in addition, I had tremendous pain. I could not sit cross-legged. And then when I first began sitting 10 minutes cross-legged, the pain was so much I could not bear it. And so I created in the Stonehenge Vihar, they had these chairs. And they're quite big wicker chairs. But being so tall, the chairs weren't quite high enough. So I put the chairs on bricks. And then I put a mosquito net over the chair. It's like I created this big throne <laughs> that I was sitting on. And it was really quite embarrassing <laughs> when Manindraji would come, you know, visit and checking up. But it actually helped me develop a little bit of concentration over time, kind of ease into the posture. There's a tremendous amount of judging in the beginning. You know, not not so much external judging at that time, but internal judgment. And it's something many of you are familiar with. This is a common pattern. Because as we sit, we begin to see, among other things, all the negative elements of our experience, of our minds, of things we've done in the past that have been unskillful. And so, you really have to learn how to be with all this judging. And then judging my practice. And I think, well, what could I do? How could it be better if I could figure something out? You know, I'm sure I wouldn't have so much difficulty. And I was really driving myself a little crazy with all that. Until a certain point, when I saw the tenacity of this judging mind, and I realized, my job is to sit and walk. 
That's all. I'm going to do my part. Just sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. And that act of surrender to the practice, surrender to the Dharma, it was a tremendous help. Because I let go of all or much of, you know, the self-judgment and the wondering about how I could do it better. I was committed just to doing it. And the Santanin, the Korean Zen master, he has a wonderful line about this. He says, just go straight. That's all. We don't have to think about our practice. We don't have to assess it. We don't have to evaluate it. Just go straight. And that kind of resolve and determination and perseverance really allowed the whole Dharma, or the continuing Dharma, to unfold. When I left Bodhgaya for the first time, after having been there the first time, I was in the rickshaw, going to the train station. Meninjaji came out, and he said something which at the time I didn't really take in, and I thought to be something of a cliché. But over the years, has come to take on tremendous meaning and significance, where I really value and appreciate the depth of. He said, just as I was living, he said, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. And as I say, at the moment it kind of just went through, but I remembered it, and you know, as practice deepened over time and living a life devoted to the Dharma, it's absolutely true. You know, and that provides a tremendous refuge. It's why the Dharma is such a blessing in our lives. The Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. When I came back to the States, working a little bit, it was difficult, very difficult. I really wanted to be doing intensive practice. You know, so I came back, I was quite depressed. But I worked and made enough money to go back to India. On the way back, I stopped in Israel, and I happened to see a movie, I don't know if you remember, it's a movie called Charlie. It was from the story uh, Flowers for Algernon. And condensed into a moment retelling, it's just about the story of somebody who is mentally retarded, who has some kind of, um, I forget what it was, medicine or an operation of some kind, you know, and he gains the full faculty and actually becomes quite brilliant, and then it wears off and he goes back to his original state. But what moved me so much in that movie was the depiction of how cruel, both thinkingly and knowingly and unknowingly, people were to him you know, when he was in a more retarded state. And just somehow I was open to seeing kind of the levels of cruelty you know, that we often engage in with one another. So when I went back to India and met Meninja again, I told him, and, and seeing that in myself, um, I really would like to do some meta practice. Because I felt both inspired and in need to develop more of that quality of a real loving heart. I did it for a couple of months that first time, and it took a while. As, as those of you who have been doing it intensively know, there are times when it's very mechanical and very dry. But over time, and with persistence, the method became very rich. And states of such amazing happiness. I had never been so happy. I thought I'd been suffused with happiness. And of course I went running to Meninja to tell him about my happiness. And very much in my mind was again this thought, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> I've got it now. I'm going to be this happy for the rest of my life. But of course Meninja just smiled. <laughs> 
causing me not to get too attached. So seeing that come and go was an important lesson again. Is that we can have glorious meditative space and feel wonderful and it's still all part of the flow of impermanence. Part of what happened to me, and I'm sure you've been noticing as well, both in Metta and in Vipassana, what's often revealed to us as we practice are different levels of kalesis, of defilement, of ignorance. There was a Nepali man staying at the Burmese Bihar at this time while I was doing the Metta. And he used to come every year from Kathmandu to study with Menindraji. And he usually brought with him a little Nepali boy to cook and do errands and stuff like that. Because the food was so bad, you know, usually we had, uh, or I had, a staff. You know, and right outside my room there was a, a window leg and I had put some oranges out there. So I'm sitting on my throne <laughs> inside the room doing matter, you know, may all beings be happy, be peaceful, be... And I hear this rustling outside my room. May all beings be happy. So little kid stealing my oranges. <laughs> and my mind became obsessed with this notion that this kid was stealing the oranges. May all beings be happy, be liberated. Of course, I went out, and it wasn't him at all, and the oranges were all there. It took seeing it retroactively to see the absurdity of that whole situation, of being practicing universal, all-encompassing, boundless loving-kindness, and being so concerned about whether somebody was taking the oranges or not. One other aspect of Muninja's teaching, which I think was, I don't know whether it was done intentionally or not, but came at a time when my practice was really going very well. Good concentration and long sittings and a lot of peace in the mind. Muninja would have this habit of bringing along every Western traveler that happened to come through Bodhaya of which a lot, you know, is a favorite, favorite place for the travelers. So somebody new would come into town, oh, let's go see Joseph. And here I was in the midst of intensive practice, very quiet, very still, and here's my teacher coming, who's this, you know, person that I'm supposed to chit-chat with. <laughs> I got really annoyed. <laughs> I think I to a point where I used to when I hear his footsteps, I would dread it. <laughs> you know, and this is my teacher that I'm relating to that way. <laughs> Don't be coming to see me. But he was persistent. I mean, he kept doing this. And it was such a valuable teaching because I got to a point where it actually didn't make any difference at all. I'd be sitting and be really quiet, really still. He'd come with whoever it was. I'd get up, I'd sit chat, go back and sit and it would be fine. But to get over the resistance to it, and to get over my attachment to what I thought my practice was, uh, it was a very good lesson. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. It comes back to that again and again and again. Freedom is about not clinging. It's not about a peaceful sitting, and it's not about feeling happy, and it's not about anything except not clinging. There's a great power in the simplicity of that understanding. During this time, I also met people more. And we've spoken over the, over the months about her. Just this amazingly wonderful being. And in some ways, more than anybody else, she was the one who really inspired my practice. Because she so embodied 
the wisdom of emptiness and the manifestation of love and to see those two operating so seamlessly is a tremendous is a tremendous inspiration to continue just to continue practicing I also began practicing with Goenka at that time he's another Vipassana teacher he was really different than Meninga he was very um, he was he really filled, fulfilled the image of a girl a very dignified very powerful with tremendous presence you know, and of course the first time I started sitting with him everything was very formal with Meninga it was very informal and my mind started doing this whole comparing trip Goenka would come in and everybody would bow and my mind why did everybody bow? we didn't bow with Meninga what does this mean? <laughs> there was one woman there who had been there a long time she was, she was actually acting out what I was thinking because the whole room bowed when he came in and she sat <laughs> and it was quite amazing it took a couple of weeks until he really won us over you know with his metta with his love with his compassion and we were all bowing quite happily you know this, that is the tradition in that culture so it's just interesting to see the comparing mind once again the judging mind jump in I started teaching after being there about six or seven years very organically. Uh, at first, Manindra would just send some other yogis over to ask questions that they had. Then, after a while, he asked me to some talks. So it was a very gradual process, which I'm very grateful for. It was a very organic way you know, to begin teaching. I remember at one point we were staying up in the mountains and I was giving weekly talks in the mountains and there was this one guy who was so obnoxious and he used to ask the most needling questions <laughs> you know, and every time I saw he was part of the group I would, oh no, <laughs> you know, him again <laughs> but I am really grateful to him I am really grateful because it was a tremendous practice in learning how to really listen, first of all, to where a question was coming from and to let go of the senses, you know, about the energy with which it's coming. So he, he, was, he was a great guest. He was a poet, actually, and... There's one short poem he wrote, which I think is very useful to us. This is when we were all back in America. Talking about the different traditions, the different vehicles of Buddhism. He wrote, the greater vehicle, the lesser vehicle. All vehicles will be towed away at owner's expense. So he offered a lot. <laughs> when I came back to America, this was 1974, uh, began teaching at Naropa that first summer that it opened, kind of this big Woodstock, Buddhist Woodstock, with Ramdas and Trungpa Rinpoche and a couple of thousand people. And that really started, uh, started the teaching in America. We did a month-long retreat in Sequoia Forest in California just after that. Um, that's actually where met Steve Smith at New Open and that month-long Sequoia. Carol had already met in India. We toured around in different places and then uh, did our first three-month course in Bucksport, Maine, where I met Steve Armstrong and Michelle. Uh, so we were all connected quite early in this. The one thing I want to mention about Bucksport is that this is the first three-month course that we taught. We're now on the 20th. We had no idea what we were doing. 
And we thought, yeah, this would be a good idea. So anyway, we muddled through somehow. But we had no understanding, really, of what was needed. And so there was no integration week at all. We came to the end of the three-month course. We had the list sitting and said, okay, goodbye. (laughs) And we had casualty reports all up and down the East Coast of these poor yogis going out there. So we learned, you know, yeah, we need, we need some days, you know, with breaking silence, people getting back together a little bit. But in this regard, having learned that lesson and having built in, you know, four or five days for integration, you don't really need a pre-integration integration. You know, that, that's really not necessary because we have planned for this. So I would encourage you to really stay with the gift of silence. You will miss it tremendously in a few days. And you will be looking back at this with longing. So while you still have this tremendously precious time, you don't need to worry about integrating. There will be time for that. During the first 10 years of teaching, I was really, I was traveling a lot, I was teaching a lot, all over. I was in Australia and South Africa and Europe and Canada and all over the States. Pretty full time. I managed generally to sit a month a year during that time. But after 10 years of doing that, I really felt that something was missing in my practice, in my life. This was in 1984. I happened to be in Australia during the Winter Olympics, the 84 Winter Olympics. And I don't know whether any of you saw or remembered that time, but there was the ice skating team of Provo and Dean who won the gold medal with a perfect score. And I happened to be at a friend's house watching this performance, which was for that time a revolutionary performance. And it was breathtaking. It was perfect. And I got so inspired in seeing that, again, about the possibility of perfection. In whatever field, that actually this is possible. We can reach that level. And so it inspired me, again, I really want to sit more. And I saw all the work in myself that needed to be done and felt so moved to get on with it again. And I didn't quite know how it was going to work. And there were a lot of fears that came up. I thought, well, if I take more time off, you know, because I built a whole lifestyle about this, this circuit. And, um, people are going to forget about me. And nobody's going to come to retreat anymore. And I won't. All of that, all of that stuff, which was, which was real. I had a lot of anxiety about just stepping out of it for a while. But the inspiration was so much greater. And so I began to think of how I could work in longer retreat time. It was just at that time that we connected with Upandita Sayadaw. He came in 84 and he taught that first three-month retreat. And that was the beginning of a next 10 year period, really of doing a lot more practice. A lot of it with Sayadaw. Now we've told countless stories of that famous 84 retreat. It was hard. It was really hard. And I think he was particularly hard on the teachers. You know, kind of, so these guys, what do they think they know? And definitely squashed. <laughs> At one point, I mean, I used to be terrified going in for interviews. <laughs> it was so intense. So I'd be sitting out in the hall, kind of full of fear about going in and reporting. 
one time I finally told him. I, I got up enough courage to tell him, you know, that I was so uh, afraid. And that actually helped a bit, because he laughed and for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, I mean, he had me working with a huge amount of pain. It, it was really difficult. It got so bad. I was I was staying in the lower walking room, you know, downstairs in one of those rooms. And I remember sitting down there, just in excruciating pain. And I would hear planes flying over, and I would think, oh, I hope it's the Russians dropping bombs. <laughs> Anything to get out of the <laughs> It really wasn't a very compassionate thought. <laughs> but it definitely came in more than once. <laughs> Since 84 and over the next eight years, I've had many long retreats of Sayadaw, a couple of times in Burma, the monastery, a couple of times in Australia, here at IMS. And the relationship over time became wonderful. And I saw the value, tremendous value, of having ongoing guidance at all the stages of one's practice along the way. The Dharma is so deep and so vast it's not like we do a little bit of practice and even come to some meaningful realization. Um, it's ongoing. It's, it's ever deepening. The power of ignorance becomes increasingly clear. I had one experience. I was sitting in Australia and Things were very strong, very powerful. There was strong energy in the body and deep experiences in my mind. And something happened. And I thought, I don't know if anybody's talked about the stages of enlightenment. You know, the stream enter and once returner and non-returner and ahant. You know, these are the four stages of enlightenment. The third stage is called anagami, which is a very deep stage of realization. It's the uprooting of desire and ill will. So that doesn't arise in the mind. And I had this experience while I was sitting. And that was the thought that came into my mind. Hmm. Anagami. <laughs> <laughs> and it felt real. It felt really deep. And, and I was feeling so much love for everybody and even people I didn't like. <laughs> but I thought it was just that, that, that just confirmed it. And I remember the next day, you know, he could hardly wait to tell Sayada. And he kind of was quite gentle and just more or less listened to me. And then over the next day or two, I saw these little judgments of ill will come back <laughs> and movements of desire again. And I was just startling after all these years of practice, you know, and going through so many different kinds of experience, how the mind can just glom on to something. Oh, yeah, this is it. I've got it now. Over and over again, on more and more deeper levels. But that's when I think of that now, I, I think of that experience as anagami for a day. <laughs> <laughs> So I think of that experience quite fondly, actually. <laughs> you know, we, I think mentioned very early on in the retreat, this one yogi who had come to me in an interview, and in characterizing the mind, said, the mind has no pride. That becomes increasingly clear over the years. Part of the work with Sayadaw, which was very helpful in addition to the Vipassana, was the Brahma Vihara practice. 
he had a way of teaching it that was so systematic and so effective and it's very much you know, how we've been doing it here and many of you have been doing the Brahmavi house intensively it's a very powerful way to develop these feelings of love and compassion and joy and equanimity and what I found so helpful in bringing this into my Dharma practice was to see the interconnectedness of the Brahma Viharas and Vipassana, the interconnectedness of love and emptiness. During the time that I had been in India, many of the people around me and friends had gone with Ramdas to see his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji. I never met him. I always was just sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. But I was connected with the Satsanga. And there was one teaching of Maharaji, which even though I had not been very connected to him over the years, this one teaching has stayed in me in such a helpful way. And what he used to say repeatedly, don't throw anyone out of your heart. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. And really resting with that as the reference point for our lives. You know, of really seeing when it is that we do. And we do. I mean, it's not to, it's not to create some kind of idealistic picture of ourselves. We often do. We get angry, we get closed off, we push people away. But if we have that as the reference point, that's what we can always come back to. That's where we can come to rest. Even if it takes a process to get there. And we can approach this from two sides. We can approach it from the side of metta, you know, of sending out love, starting with benefactor or friend, people we love, a neutral person to all beings. So slowly we include all beings in our field. We can also come to this resting place from this understanding of selflessness. Because when we understand selflessness, there's no one there to keep anybody out. And that's precisely how metta and wisdom, metta and vipassana come together. And they come together in this very beautiful place. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. It's expressed, again, very beautifully in a Japanese, uh, Japanese poem. It's a haiku. In the cherry blossom shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. Next. That's what our practice really is about. In very recent years, I've been doing some Tibetan practices, which also weave in so beautifully to this and are expressed so fully in the teachings of Bodhicitta. And the the literal meaning of that word is enlightened mind, enlightened heart. And it's about the motivation of the enlightened mind or the enlightened heart that we practice, that we dedicate our practice to the benefit of all. And it's precisely this union of metta, of love and emptiness that makes this possible. We dedicate our practice to the benefit of all because we develop loving feelings for all beings. And we dedicate our practice to the benefit of all 
because there's no one here to be separate from all. And from, from both sides, from the side of love and from the side of emptiness, we come to rest in Bodhisattva. I'd like to close with something I read a number of weeks ago, and it was the Buddha's instruction to the first 60 disciples, the first 60 enlightened disciples. This is a slightly edited version. Go forth, O yogis, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, the benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Spread the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who are doing the duty. Go forth for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of all beings. And that's really what we dedicate our practice to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.